Hi, you found the Bomb Podcast. For streaming video, web exclusive interviews, and more, check out bombsite.com. Today's podcast features an interview with novelist Peter Carey by poet Robert Polito, part of the Bomb Live Writer series that took place at the New School in New York City in the winter of 2001. I think I'd like to start by just simply congratulating Peter. You've written a remarkable novel here, and it's also been a, a, a great success. Um, it's a success on at least three continents that I know of already, um, Australia, North America, and, and Europe. And you've been reading to... You left that island. Our, well, that, that, that's going to come up later. Um, I didn't leave out Ireland. Um, but um, I'm wondering if, um, if there's any aspects of the reception of the book has surprised you in any way. Uh, well, it's, I, I suppose the interesting thing is that the receptions are, uh, are a little different. Uh, in Britain, uh, that uh, tends to be talked about as a revisionist history, and, uh, which seems to me a little odd. The, because, but I, I, I realised in the end that most of the British critics really had always thought of Ned Kelly as this smelly Australian criminal. And uh, when they found somebody in the pages of my book who they actually liked... They, they, they thought that this must be revisionist. Um, in fact, I, I think my view of Ned Kelly is very close to the you know, view of, of most Australians. Um, in Australia, a very distressing thing happened, which was that um, I mean, this book is really, as you would expect from the title, uh, true history. It's hugely made up. And um, yet it does, it sort of touches on known parts of the story. And a lot of the early Australian critics, I think, had no damn idea how made up it was. And so they, the, those three major reviews really tended to review Ned Kelly, uh, which, of course, for a, you know, a, a somebody attempting to produce literature is a little disappointing. Um, but fortunately, some, some, some younger, more enthusiastic uh, critics came along later who... who and gave me the praise I deserved. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and in the United States, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm always, I, when I write, writing the book, I was always thought, and I think many Australians would have shared my feelings, you know, to think that, that Ned Kelly, or other, was so much ours that uh, Americans, American readers would not be particularly entranced or engaged with the story. I think that was how we would think of it. And uh, so I was continually pleased, I must say, but sort of when people started saying it's a Western. Now, if, if, if I tell my, my friends in, in Australia, they're living and they say, they'll say, well, Pete, you know, what, what do the Yanks think about this Ned Kelly thing? And I say, well, I'll tell you, they think it's a Western. And you can hear the laughter, you know, uh, because for an Australian an Australian, a Western, is just by definition so completely American. And Ned Kelly, by definition, just exclusively Australian. That that particular way of reading it certainly is not one that I would have expected or thought about. And yet it's wonderful because there's a... Well, and, and you've built into the book actually these kind of American things. I mean, like, um, the Ned, um, your Ned Kelly gets the idea to don iron armour from the American Civil War. Yeah. And the child that the book is addressed to is in the fiction of it living in San Francisco. Yeah, I did have a I did have a very angry stalker in Australia who 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 uh, 
pursued me in firstly by email and then in Sydney and then in Melbourne. Uh, and he was particularly irate about the fact that uh, Ned's child should end up in this country. Um, but of course, you know, it, it, if, you, if you read the press at the time, uh, it was thought generally thought that the, you know, when, the, when the gang was, were missing for a long time and couldn't be found by anybody, that they'd indeed come to this country. And that was an option that uh, they doubtless considered. And he could, of course, save his life if he had. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Um, also, there were a lot of Americans in the story. I mean, one of, one of, one of his mother's you know, lovers, George King, historically, was, you know, yeah. was in America. And, uh, and the, uh, the armour. I mean, what Ned Kelly's known about, known for in Australia, is that the, the gang produced this amazing armour, which is made out of ploughshares. And it weighs... And it's, and it's got a head like... A, like a big bucket with a little slit like that to see through. But, and when you put it, it weighs 120 pounds. Uh, I was relieved that I didn't fall down when I, when I put it on. It was, you uh, did put it on? Yeah. Well, I put on a replica. I, I, went, I met with a blacksmith who'd, who'd produced this replica for an exhibition. And, uh, and uh, it was very, very heavy indeed. Uh, but you know it's called armour so everybody tends to think that the whole inspiration for this you know, has come from some medieval knight but in, but, in, but in the press accounts of Australia at the time the outlaws were referred to as the ironclads and you wonder where that word's come from and, um, but even before that I was thinking you know, that he, he, I mean, he's, he's trying to make himself capable of withstanding modern weapons and, and, and my dear friend Patrick McGrath who Turned up late here tonight, um, but he's a character in the book. Um. <laughs> but did go across the road from his house to the Imperial War Museum to see because I thought I didn't know about the history of the tanks, and I thought there might have been a, you know, an armoured car or a, ta- a tank that had been invented early that he might have. But Patrick reported no tanks, so I moved on to the to the Iron Merrimack ships. And yeah. Monitor, I wonder if we might first circle like Ned Kelly and this kind of double view of Ned Kelly, the kind of official Australian view of him as a, as a horse thief and a murderer on the one hand, and then, and then the kind of secret and true history of him as, in a way, the founder of Australian nationalism and a, and a folk hero and the, with, with a real vision of Australia's future from the perspective of the role of Australia in, in your fiction. Like, if we go back a book, the previous book is, is Jack Maggs, and that was also a book that put the great transportation and the convict past of Australia at the center. And, and Jack Maggs is a radical and beautiful revisiting of great expectations. And in cunning ways, Peter rewrites the story of Magwitch and Pip, here Jack Maggs and Phipps, from the Australian ends of things, as it were. And the novel provides the same empathy to Magwitch that Dickens gives to and these are both books with large ambitions and great historical as well as literary resonance and they, and they both seem to me aimed at, at tracking something like the Australian national psyche and American writers used to talk all the time about getting America down and all of this complexity in the novel writers from Dos Passos to Norman Mailer and well I don't think it would be right to suggest that your novels have grown more Australian the longer you've been in New York but they seem more directly focused on the idea of Australia. Mm. And I wonder if you might talk a bit about the sense that these novels, whatever else they're trying to do in terms of story and character, aim to encompass Australia. Yeah. We should have talked about these questions on the phone, shouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, well, in a, in, a, in, a, in a sense, I mean, I do, I do, 
I think it just goes back to a sort of a, well, let's hope sort of relatively healthy sort of narcissism. And, and that, I mean, writers are yeah, absolutely always obsessed with themselves. And in my case, my obsession becomes mixed up with my, my country and the question of uh, who we are and who I am. Uh, what sort of people are we? I mean, in, in, and to come to this book, I mean, the book is born of the question, you know, what sort of people are we that has a story like this as our major story? Uh, so it, it is... And, and Australian, Australian culture seems to me still to be so very thin uh, that one is... One, one's a writer or an artist has the great privilege of, some, of, of possibly being able to name things for the first time. And because as Ned Kelly... Well, my Ned Kelly says at the beginning that he's been raised on lies and silences. Well... Uh, lies and silences uh, do leave us with a, a lot, of, lot of work to do in discovering who we are. So, the, with the, the, the notion of, of the convict past is something that uh, certainly I grew up thinking that was nothing particularly to do with me. And uh, there were the convicts and then there were the rest of us. And, and, uh, and Australians, tend to, uh, when they celebrate the, um, you know, the founding of the country, well, they did in, in, at the, in our bicentennial. They, they tend to officially leave out the two most important things. They have the tall ships and the soldiers on the deck, but um, somehow they sort of forget that there was a, you know, an Aboriginal population that had been there for 50,000 years, so they don't have a part in any of that. And then below the deck of the ships were the convicts, and they don't really have a part, in, or didn't have a part in that particular celebration. So, um, because we've not wanted to see a lot of things like the effect that that convict past has had on it. And it seems to me it's our convict past, our founding fathers and mothers have had a big an effect on us as your founding fathers and mothers. And something that continues to this very day and in Australia, it's likewise. So these are interesting things to discover. And hence the notion of fooling around with Magwitch and great expectations to recognise that he was in a sense uh, my ancestor. Yeah. Um, but you know, Ned is just haunted by the by the um, by the convict past. I mean, he has this this beautiful line: "When our brave parents was ripped from Ireland like teeth from the mouth of their own history, and every dear familiar thing had been abandoned on the docks of Cork or Galway or Dublin, then the banshee came on board the curse convict ships." Mm. And so he's, he's kind of haunted by this past. But the but the novel is really addressed to the Australia's future, isn't it, in the form of the, the daughter who's the recipient of the page, isn't it? Well, it is addressed to a better time. It is, it is, it is addressed to a better future. And uh, one of the things he says at, at, at the beginning, well, I can barely remember it, um, is, anyway, he, his assumption that all, 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 all the cruelties and coarse words that you're now about to read will, will, will have all passed away. So that child does enable him to be optimistic about what about circumstances that are very, very oppressive and cruel at the time. And, the, and there's these conflicting visions of Australia. I mean, like there's the official vision of Australia, which is the, which is the constable's vision and the landowner's vision, um, in which the, you know, all of those people kind of collaborate against people like, like Ned. And then there's, there's Ned's vision that, that, that culminates really in this, in this army that, that he creates at the end of the novel, people like him, that he that he describes as um, 
They arrived in broken car and drays. They was the type that the Benalla Ensign named the most frightful class of people. They couldn't afford to leave their cows and pigs, but they'd done so because we was them and they was us, mm. and we had showed the world what convict blood could do. We proved there weren't no taint. We was of true bone blood and, and beauty born. That's his line, the last bit, true blood, bone, and beauty born. For, for uh, his letter. Uh, he, he, really, he was no slouch as a writer, not a well-educated man, but... Uh, there's some, uh, and certainly when it com- comes to invective, he was far better than I ever could be. So I always felt dwarfed by him. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, I mean, I think this is in the end. Yeah, when you say what sort of, when I ask what sort of people are we that that we should have this story? Well, you didn't uh, ask it though. It's interesting. It's a character who asks that. It's a very ambiguous character in the book. Who asks that. Oh yes. Well, he he, he takes a conservative position, yeah. saying what what is wrong with us? You know, why, you know, why would we? Why can't we have a Disraeli or a Jefferson? Why must we always make such an embarrassing spectacle of ourselves, he says. But, you know, this person has... Well, of course, I made him say those things, but um, the, uh, the, he shouldn't have really been surprised because, after all, this, this is the country that has waltzing Matilda. Right. You, know, you know, the guy, the guy who steals a sheep and commits suicide rather than go into custody. And, and, and this is the song of our heart. This is the song that moves us. So he really shouldn't be surprised that we're getting engaged with with Ned Kelly. Uh, and I think the thing, of, you know, Australia does begin with this whole notion of the convict seed and the convict stain, and this the whole question that lies over the country: Can you have a decent society in this place where you, know, you start with these? terrible people and I think the wonderful thing that, you know, that Ned Kelly Ned Kelly is the convict see and uh, and he proves himself to be not trapped in this sort of deterministic view but to show himself to be truly protein, I mean he's a giant and he demonstrates to, to everybody because this is a media event, believe me um, that he's smarter braver uh, and basically more decent than any of the people that would, would like to you know, imprison him in this view. So, um, one of the I was in I've been touring around, talking too much about myself, and I was in Denver, and, and an Australian guy came up and said his grandfather, and I, 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 I'm going to tell you this story. It's about you know, Ned Kelly's character and, and the impression he made on people. He said this man's grandfather had been. A jockey, I guess a part-time jockey, because he was riding, he, he rode his horse down to the Melbourne Cup, which is the great horse race in Australia. And uh, he, he rode in the Cup, and he was riding his horse back, and he just happened to be going past this little shanty in the in the in the tiny uh, hamlet, I guess, of, of Glen Rowan, at the time when the Kellys were making their last stand. And so this man was taken hostage along with the others. And his grandson remembers vividly. Uh, anytime he, if he referred to Kelly as Ned Kelly, his grandfather would always contradict him and say, Mr. Kelly, to you. Uh, and um, there's so many stories like that about this man. And really, the great, his great character witnesses were the bank, bank managers uh, uh, or the policemen's wives, who were always, uh, at the end of their encounters with Ned Kelly, impressed by his character. Uh, so this was a remarkable man, I do believe. Well, one of the things, that you, even the story that you just told is, um, connects with this. I think well, one of the things that the book really became about for me is, um, is history and who gets to write it. 
you know, and I think one of some of the great scenes in the book are, are when we, we get these newspaper accounts, or these probably fictional newspaper accounts, oh, real newspaper accounts, real accounts of, yeah. of Ned's activities in which Ned or his wife then kind of annotate and comment on and kind of edit and give the and give the kind of true version of it. And and, and I think Ned is very kind of conscious of, in a way of being, I think, Australia's first historian in some ways. I mean, um, there's a there's a beautiful moment in which after I, th I think it's after the kind of the first killing of the policeman and one member of his gang starts singing these these old Irish songs. Mm -hmm. And Ned turns to him and says something like stop singing that, we don't sing that anymore, we, we write our own history mm. from now on. Mm. And that's kind of this kind of turning point in that even the history of Ireland, which you mentioned before, is actually inadequate to this new history. It's part mm. of the Molly Maguire mm. that they have to reject to kind of write this true history. And um, as, as Ned goes on, um, you know, I think in that, when he, when he gives his first public speech, he says, um, in the hut at Faithful's Creek, I see proof that if a man could tell his true history to Australians, he might be believed. Um, but, go ahead. Well, I mean, there are two parts of it. I mean, there's the aspect of, you know, who writes history. Yeah. Um, and then there's another, just more character-driven aspect of, of, of the... thing, And then the character-driven thing comes out of the historical character who you can just see driven mad with the desire the, to tell the story. And this is a man whose experience of... Um, he had a long and rather bitter experience of the law and of justice and so on, but a person who continues to have this sort of touching belief that if he can only tell the story, it will be believed. And this is the... the, the when they held up the bank at Uroa in this most beautiful robbery, which gained him the immediate respect and admiration of all Australians. Um, uh, and, they, they, and, 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 they, and they held up, um, and they held these people hostage at this farm. He did address, like a jury, his, his captives, and he did have an extremely. He, he, he swayed the jury uh, in doing this, and I think at that moment he began to have um, a different idea of himself. You have to think of someone who's been really right at the bottom of the social pecking order. You know, the Irish in Australia at that time are well, there's the Aboriginals and then the, 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 then the Irish, and that's. And they had no shoes. They looked down. If you read the newspapers of that time in Australia, they're just filled with these anti-Irish jokes. One of the lovely things about the Kellys' uh, two years of freedom is that uh, the jokes do tend to start to be about the police rather than about the Irish. But that's by the by. Um, so he and, and he's a man who wrote. He, he wrote the, He wrote this 56-page letter uh, explaining things. Um, so that's, that's who I think he was. Uh, and of course, yes, there's a whole... Our history anyway, the history of these sort of people is really like sort of little wooden shacks in that they sort of just sort of rot into the earth. I mean, we don't really... The, the only things that we know really are sort of police records and things like that. And as for their emotional life, um, I think one can with great responsibility uh, seek to you know, invent them and to make them fit into what, you know, the... the, the more legal history that's there. I was fascinated that his first two memories are these. I mean, the first memory is, is his mother breaking eggs in a dish on the morning that her brother was arrested and taken to jail. And the second memory is that he's given a pencil by Sergeant O'Neill, I think. Yeah. And those, those kind of two strands of his, of his life. The, 
you know, the scholar and the, and the criminal. I wish I was smart enough to have planned that. Uh, no, I mean, you know, one does things intuitively yeah. often and makes a choice. And, and, and I guess those things remain because they do work in that way, but I never really considered those as, uh, in that way. Yeah. But it's, just, it's just a beautiful moment. Um, I wonder where, where Ned's language comes from. Obviously, one, one source is that letter. I mispronounced the name, but the Gerildery? You did, real, you did fine. Okay, Gerildery letter, which, which I also love the way that you avoid putting that letter in the book because it's, it's sort of lost forever at some point. The government takes it over. So that's well, that is a like missing chapter. That did book. what happened. Yeah. Yeah. That is what happened, brother. It did what happened. <laughs> I'm um, getting back into the language. You know. yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but Ned has this kind of, is this real kind of poetry that he, that he has throughout the, throughout the text. Um, I mean, just quote one example, in addition to the ones I've been quoting, the, the memory of the policeman's words lay inside me like the egg of a river fluke. And while I went about growing up, the slander warmed deeper and deeper into my heart and grew fat. Um, you know, Ned's, Ned's mother tells some of these Irish stories when he's growing up, and he's kind of surrounded by this Irish mythology. He reads Lorna Doom, he reads the Bible, he reads some Shakespeare. Um, how did you arrive at this language for him? Because I, I, I read some of that, that letter, and that letter is much harsher. Yes, it is. Well, there's a, there's a, there's a different... There's a, firstly, there's a different tone of voice you would expect from a man coming to the end of his tether, which the historical character is... And, and, and the Gerildry the letter is like a cry of pain and is sometimes rather funny. Uh, but it is someone who I think knows he's getting very close to the point where he's going to die. The, uh, this, uh, the notion of this is it's written to a daughter. It's a diff- it, so it will tend to be less harsh uh, but partly the language was inspired you know, by, by, by his letter which I first read when I was about 20 and was so impressed with it I typed the, up the whole thing in my slow pecking way um, so that was really burnt into my brain I do believe uh, the other thing is that I went to a small country school in, in Victoria probably about 100 miles as the crow flies from where Ned Kelly lived and the uh, a lot of those kids were not particularly well educated and uh, some, of, some of my sense of that voice really comes from the schoolyard at Bacchus Marsh State School number 28 because uh, certainly I never, I never felt um, unsure about the voice so it's coming from somewhere yeah. other than uh, you know a sort of a parody of Ned Kelly's writing it doesn't read like parody at all. It doesn't read like pastiche. I mean, when I when I first when you first told me that you were going to put the you know the, the novel in his voice, my you know my kind of worry was that it was going to end up like something like Mason and Dixon in some ways. It's like this kind of pastiche of, a, of of an earlier dialect, and and to me it reads almost like this kind of genuine instance about like about outsider art. This this thing that's well, only self-contained and sui generis, and you just can't imagine it any other way. Well, I think I think really when I wanted to write at the very beginning when I discovered that there were people like well particularly Faulkner and I Lay Dying when there were people like that in the world, there is a notion about that book particularly as I Lay Dying which is was and is still moving to me which is the notion of giving voice to the voiceless of making a poetry that comes out of those poor uneducated struggling people um so I didn't think about that all the time I was writing this book, but when I finished it, uh, it seemed to me sort of to contain all of the things that had drawn me to literature mm-hmm. in the first place. Um, and it's also, you know, the, the, influ- the other things that I didn't think about 
fortunately, until after it was done. I mean, it's a book that, prob- that couldn't, I couldn't have written if I'd not read Joyce. I couldn't have written it if I'd not read Beckett, I don't believe. Have you read Gertrude Stein in connection with this? No, I haven't, actually. Because, I mean, she's, she's the other writer that writes mm-hmm. sentences, in fact, like those, those like, arc sentences. Well, it's a very, it's, it's, it's the, the thing of leaving out commas is so damned useful. <laughs> that when you start to leave them out and run sentences on, uh, you're in dangerous territory, I think. And uh, I did the first draft like that, and it was, ju- it was, ju- it was very like Ned Kelly and, and sort of unreadable. And um, so I st- uh, for most of the book, I, I, I used these sort of rough, approximate commas. And it was only at the very end, when everything else was sort of locked in, when the, sort of the dramatic form of the book was there and the scenes were fully imagined that... Uh, I just uh, did a global search and took out the commas and the full stops and then went back and rebuilt it and rewrote it from there. And the interesting thing about doing it is that what it forces you into is far greater clarity. Uh, Commas hide a lot of things. And and, uh, so the effect was to make, I think, to make finally to make the work clearer. And I certainly didn't want to punish readers if... uh, I mean, I, one, of the, one of my fond memories of writing workshops you know, is, you know, people say, well, I didn't want to make it too easy for the reader. Well, <laughs> in the real world, people don't, people don't you know, read our work three times with a pen in their hands. Their hands so. Um, so I was really concerned that even though this is a, you know, a difficult thing to do, that, it, that the reader should be, learn how to do it in the first page or so. It doesn't read difficult. No. Yeah. Um, okay. I also love the way Ned kind of pulls this poetry from the natural world. I mean, like, all of those, all those metaphors, and I could have read, like, a hundred more, I mean, they're, they're all pulled from the world that he's deeply immersed in as a, as a farmer. There's, so there's, there's nothing kind of literary in the way I reflect it about them. Well, it has to grow out of place. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, the, there are Australians here, and I know there are one or two. Um, the, I'm not the first person to write about Ned Kelly, uh, but one of the things that seemed, to, two things seemed to me that have been largely missing from other work, and one was sense of class, his class, and the other was the, the fact that this, these, these are rural people. I mean, what they want, they want horses and they want land, and they are of the land and all of their obsessions all of their experience is to you have to know about I mean I can't I hate horses but uh, well let's say I'm frightened of horses might be better um, and so but yet what I ha- one of the things I have to know I have to do is to be able to write about horses so that somebody who's spent their whole life on a horse will accept that I know what I'm talking about, uh, and, and that has to happen with all of these, you know, the things about the, you know, the soil and the weather, and, ev- and so naturally, then, if I immerse myself in that and think that the character grows from the soil, then, then all of the images will also grow right, out of grow out of the soil. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the reviews that I've read of the book focus on Ned as a very kind of idealized portrait of, of him, and um, but when, but when you kind of read the book closely, I mean, it, it's a very complicated psychological portrait. It seems to me, on the one hand, you, that he's someone who doesn't get along with a single man, really, in the book, mm-hmm. except for his brothers. He, he tries to kill all of his parents, 
all of his mother's lovers, including his own father. He feels responsible for his own father's death. Um, he, he actively tries to kill um, um, Bill Frost and um, the other ones. The, the George, George King? George King. Mm. And, um, he just threatens to kill George. Oh, he goes to kill George. He goes to kill George. Yeah, um, oh, I forgot that. And, he, um, and both his brother and George King accuse him of viewing his mother as his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And when, he's, and when, he, when he meets his wife, um, Mary Hearn, sees her riding on a horse, he actually mistakes her for his, for his mother. And I'm wondering how... Something wrong with all this? Well, I'm, I'm wondering how you, uh, you know, how you work that into your, your, your sense of his maybe social story, his political story, because I think that one way almost of, of reading the whole political part of the last third of the book is that he's really trying to get his mother yeah. out of jail. Yeah. And, he, and, um, and, it's, and it's very personal. It's not, it's not political mm. and social at all. Well, it, it, one of the things that seem to me really... I mean, when I talk to my Aussie friends about this, and I, and I say I'm writing about Ned Kelly, and I expected them to be all excited, and instead their eyes sort of glazed over. Uh, and well, why would you bother? Because we know all about Ned Kelly anyway. And, uh, so... It seemed to me there was just so much stuff lying on the ground. If this is a, this is, if this is a mine that's been well worked o- over, there's gold nuggets lying everywhere, it seemed to me. And one of the things is this is a man who, who uh, did seem to be driven, uh, the story seems to be driven by his relationship with his mother. I mean, we know at the very end of the story, he's, when he, he's sort of half nuts and he's signing his letters, you know, I am a widow's son outlawed and must be obeyed. And we know, know that, you know, that his mother's in prison uh, and he is passionately wants to get her out. If you go back to the beginning of the, li- of the life, you see that here's a boy who loses his father when he's 12. He's the oldest son. Um, he and the mother are going to fo- naturally going to form a, you know, a close bond. There'll be a survival unit. We, then, we, we also know that we know the exact size of the hut that they lived in. We know there were no internal walls. There were only curtains. Uh, and we know yeah, that Mrs. Kelly had, well, at least three lovers who, and some became husbands. But, and we know that their sex life is going to take, pla- take place within this little hut. And you've got a 12-year-old boy there and he's in a close relationship with his mother. Well, it's not too weird to think he's going to be, say, uh, you know, jealous of those men. And, and so on. So I think you can, and you, so you, if you start to think about this, you can start to put a picture together which runs a, a line of action that goes right through this whole story that's yeah. uh, determined by the relationship with the mother. And of course, then I emphasized it in all sorts of ways. Uh, and uh, this is the lying work of the novelist uh, working in the service of I have a greater truth. Do you see um, Ned as having limits in, in any particular way? Like you mentioned Faulkner before. I mean, uh, in what ways do you think is, is Ned the unreliable historian oh. of this book? Well, I mean, I think he's, he's totally of his time. And, I mean, if you think of uh, if Ned talking about, about his father who was uh, a conflict with a group of um, black men. And uh, Ned says, uh, Ned describes the, 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 and their father's set upon by them. And, he, and, and he, Ned says something like, a vicious Sydney black named Warrigal you know, set upon my father. My father ne- never done nothing to him. Uh, and you know, the modern reader reading that knows you know, that that's not true at all. You know, you know that you know, the whole of, 
what was done to those people was, was considerable and the, re- and the reason that the, that particular group of black men are acting in the way they are. So we know he's unreliable um, in all sorts of ways, I would say. Um, and certainly, you know, he doesn't have, a, he doesn't have the uh, liberal racial sensibility we Australians might like to give him. I mean, it would have been great for us, I think, you know, if, if I could have invented uh, this uh, old black man who taught Ned the tracks, you know, <laughs> uh, 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 or, or a young one, or, or whatever, and that would have, you know, reconciled, brought a, but you can't do that. We've told ourselves enough lies, uh, so you, somehow you have to, you know, grasp this the uncomfortable, this little, how can you have a person who's a hero who's not in every way as you would wish him to be. And somehow or other, I think you've just got to represent that and let it sit there and learn how to deal with it. And yeah. Now, I was thinking too, there's a lot of things he doesn't see coming. You know, he's these naive and mm. ways, particularly mm. at the beginning, in relation to, to Harry Power, the person who takes it's him continually up. continually naive. Yeah, very and trusting. He, and he's kind of naive at the end, too, in a slightly different way, when he gives his manuscript over to um, Thomas Kernow. Well, he had yeah, to do he, that. <laughs> There'd be no book. So he, yeah. was, he was not free to keep that. I mean, I wouldn't let him do that for, for my own yeah, mechanistic but, but, storytelling way. Yeah. But the way it works in the kind of book is almost like a kind of vanity. I mean, like, you know, yeah. Cornell comes in and flatters him about what a good writer yeah. is and I can edit this book and, and take it someplace. The, the historical... Cornell is a school teacher who, you know, uh, as you've not, if you've not read the book, does get involved with the, the Ned's writing. But the historical Cornell um, did flatter Ned and did trick Ned and um, was permitted by Ned to go home to his wife and then uh, he, he, he turns him into he, he, yeah. so and I think the historical character was continually I mean continually trusting of, of people you know there's a constable Fitzpatrick who's an atrocious person uh, defended by no one afterwards uh, who he trusted uh, senior constable Hall another scoundrel um, not a good not a good word spoken about him by anybody, the police included, who Ned trusted. Mm. So, yeah. what? just seemed to be one of the most fascinating figures in the book, though. We might talk about him a little bit more, because he's, you know, he's the person who start, he starts the book in a way, you know, like the kind of opening, the prologue sort of ends with him walking away with the book that we're, we're reading. Um, and then we were told at the end that, um, that the, the, the kind of grey marks, I think, that are over the manuscript are, are his. And, 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 and he's the person that asked that question that we, we spoke of earlier. Why are Australians interested in, in, in people like this? So in some sense, he's, he's kind of the voice of official Australia. Well, you know, the voice of the constables and the landowners, to a certain extent, and the voice of betrayal. But he's, but he's also the reason why we have this true history. Yeah. And he's also, in his, in, in, in the, he, he really was amazingly courageous. And of course, he, I mean, he, he's the... You know, he's slight, partially crippled, and he's the person that does what this whole army of police have been unable to do. He can rightly, I think, in view of the society at the time, expect to be looked on as a hero. But of course he's not. And so he's not because we're Australians and we will tend to vilify the colonel. And so naturally he's upset. Naturally he says these things, but... Uh, uh, that are critical of you know, Australians' values. Kerno got the biggest reward, and he fought hard to uh, originally. I think, yeah, you know, the historical Kerno. So he got a thousand pounds out of it. 
but uh, he's not remembered fondly. But, but, but he's obviously fascinated enough with the story to preserve it. Well, so in a way, he's kind of answering his own question. Right? Yes. Well, I mean, the thing that I thought in, 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 have, in having him obsessing over the manuscript was that, uh, well, that's a little bit like, yeah, it's, it's really to do with the force of Ned Kelly's character. It's the man who says, Mr. Kelly. I mean, uh, the book, I think, the manuscript has impressed Kerner yeah. against his will. Exactly. Is what yeah. Yeah. Um, th- one, of the, one of the other fascinating things for me, this is a book, as Peter was saying, that's really rooted in the land and the, and the soil, but there's a the whole kind of supernatural apparatus around the, mm. the edges of it. I mean, like there's that banshee passage mm. that I read before, that the banshee mm. somehow got him aboard the convict ship. And one of my favorite scenes in the in the novel is when Ned is called back to Harry Power by this by this boy this, who's, who's presented to us as, as kind of thin with long thin fingers and, and almost like an impossibly gifted rider mm. who takes him to this almost this kind of magical farm. And, mm. and Harry tells him he might not be a boy of this earth but a substitute. Mm. And he has this strange sister named Caitlin, uh, you know, that Ned first kind of falls in love with and never and never sees again. But What's fascinating to me about this supernatural aspect is that it's very much connected to the political vision of the world. Because when Ned arrives at that at that farmhouse, he sees these, these fat, well-fed cows, and he says and he says something like, "This gave me a vision of the world when you know after justice, after justice would be achieved." And um, and I'm wondering how you how you saw those. And there are others. I mean, like like there's the boy whose eyes changed color after after he, a gun is fired in his mm-hmm. presence and. And that's also connected, I think, to the political vision, because at some point, right then, Ned says, um, we'll be changed in the fire the same way that the alchemist changed um, lead into gold. Well, I suppose it's what happened. When you, you, you mean, when the story has these two different, or a number of different forces, which, and one of them, one of them is, was my desire to, um, I mean, I'm continually thinking about the political framework of the book, and I'm also uh, thinking about what, the, what sort of culture these people brought with them and as Australians we've to, to so much wanted Ned Kelly to be a, a, an Aussie uh, that it's been a sort of a year zero situation in the way we've thought about it we haven't tended to want to imagine what came from Ireland and also what, what didn't come from Ireland and uh, so I guess I spent a lot I spent a lot of time reading I- Irish folk stories and um, immersing myself yeah. in that thinking that those sorts of that he would have grown up with those sorts of stories. So, you know, that that child in that story, that boy with the thin legs and the long feet, and the, it's sort of like a creature out of, out of an Irish folk story, you know, much yeah. much modified. Uh, so, you know, I want to do that. So that's really just trying to represent a way of thinking. And of course, but this is like magic and dread always at the edge of his world. That's probably just my bad character. First. Um, I'm wondering how you view these these books like Jack Maggs or even The Unusual Life of Tristan Smith and Ned Kelly in terms of genre because there's a sense in which they are historical novels that are unlike most historical novels in which they sort of delve into these kind of autonomous worlds that, mm. that promote these kind of secret histories that really run on a track kind of analogous to the official history that other books might track. What, yeah, historical fiction just makes me so nervous because uh, it always sounds like something I wouldn't want to read. Um, and it's, I never really made any distinction, really, although I have to keep on making it because people keep on talking about historical fiction. But 
um, between sci- a, a science, science fiction or a, a, the past, the present or the future. Um, because in the end, as far as in literature, it's all made up, it's all fabricated. And if you're writing about the past, you have the advantage that there's a whole lot of stuff that's already been made up for you that you can use. Uh, you have the disadvantage that people have opinions about that stuff, so you've got to take care of that. And with the future, of course, it's wonderful. You can invent anything. Or in a parallel world, you can invent anything. But you have the terrible disadvantage that... I mean, in Tristan Smith, where uh, the unusual life of Tristan Smith, I had to sort of decide, yeah, well, in this world, is the Shakespeare in this world? And, and what are the trees called? And, um, and what are they, those trees? And, and so it, it gets to a stage of you know, totally, being totally terrifying. I mean, thank God, I, I, you know, I decided... The, there would be a Shakespeare in that world uh, just as well. Uh, but no real... They're all different ways of looking at, I suppose, of looking at the present. So, I mean, the Jack Mag seems to me, you know, Australia, you have to realise, is a country that still doesn't... Uh, uh, is still not a republic. And uh, that in 1975, uh, the representative of the Queen of England... Uh, dismissed our elected government. Uh, so, uh, a story about... <laughs> so, a, 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 a story like Jack Maggs um, about a, a, this convict who, who is free in Australia and returns to England to, uh, to sit with this little imaginary gentleman that he's manufactured at risk to his life seems to me a very modern story that uh, seems to me about us now and who we are right well, now and the fact that his that, that gentleman is his creation yeah. and his tormentor right? so yes at the same time. well he doesn't know yeah. he doesn't recognise that his beloved son is, is, is his tormentor and uh, so one of the satisfying things for me about Jack Maggs was that he finally did recognise uh, I, I didn't let him uh, die with false consciousness. This might seem like a loaded question, um, but it really isn't. I mean, the, I, I think of your books as very it means, kind of it means it is. wise and forgiving about human behavior. And I wonder if in the, that kind of old D.H. Lauren sense of trusting the tale and not the teller, there's a way in which you feel that your work knows more than you do. Oh. Well, that's why writers are always so disappointing. Um, <laughs> I mean the whole the whole the whole process of writing. I do think uh, uh, probably not true for Anita Bruckner who writes one draft, right? But for, but but, but for, for most of us, we write many drafts, and we have a chance to slowly elevate ourselves and to become wiser than we are, in fact. And uh, so, in a way, you know, writing a novel and all the various drafts is, is, is like making a staircase to, to a, so you come out of the end having made something that is indeed smarter. Yeah. Than you are. Uh, that's one of the wonders of it. I guess now we should take some questions. From well, I do want you all to take some questions, but before that, and just people start sneaking out, um, I want to say thank you to the new school and the graduate writing program for having us, to Robert Salido, to um, Gary Fiskett of Salon.com, to Gabriella, thank you all. And to Peter Kelly for coming, and all of you for coming as well. You're a great audience. So thank you. And uh, we'll keep it to half a dozen or less, okay?
less, it looks like. <laughs> I haven't read the book, but fascinated by the conversation tonight. I'm curious as to how the Aboriginal population figures into all of this. And hmm. Do they have a view of Ed Kelly? And, you know, if, if they're on the bottom of the pile and there's just one layer ahead of them, what is their... Well, I think, I think historically uh, the people who were most likely to be the murderers and rapers of the Aboriginal people were the people the next, mm-hmm. the next rung up and that would tend to be the, you know, the convicts and, uh, and they were so it's, it's you know, in, a way, in a way the two, the two lots of people who are the victims in this uh, well certainly the, the, the convicts don't seem to have been very nice to the Aboriginals um, and one can only simply address, in this book, just address that fact, I do believe. Um, but has this man achieved some kind of mythic oh, among, among Aboriginals? There, there, there is a Ned Kelly. There is a, there is a, there is a I believe, and Australians love, love this because, it, again, because it reconciles something. Uh, there is there is meant to be I think a sort of a Ned Kelly cargo cult of some sort in uh, in northern Australia um, and people will often mention this as being you know because I, th- I think in some way then to have the have have yeah you know, uh, indigenous people admiring Ned Kelly in that sort of way uh, makes us all feel a lot better um, but I wouldn't think that, ne- that now that Ned Kelly was of any great really great importance to Aboriginal people at all. Um, in one of the, I think it was an English article about you, there was a photograph taken at the Sydney Olympics in which there were a whole bunch of children dressed up as kind of mini Ned Kelly's and, mm. and armor. What was, what was that all about? Yeah, that's what I, I was sitting here at New York yelling at the television, you know, you idiots, you know, having, well, it seemed to be really trivial, but actually when I went back to Australia, I couldn't, I couldn't find a single person to agree with me, and all the people I, when I said, you know, wasn't that, wasn't that just so revolting, they said, oh, we really, we really liked it, and after, you know, I mouthed off about it for about three weeks, and then at the end of that time, I start, started to ask some questions, and, and, and I think what was important uh, about that was not that it was, rather kitsch because the whole of that opening ceremony is, is like that and that's what people do now so, but it was that we were officially recognising Ned Kelly I mean there's a way where official Australia tends not to want to well, you didn't hear anyone singing Waltzing, Waltzing Matilda at the games uh, but, which would have been nice um, but there was Ned Kelly and so that was, that was important so there was a, there was, there was a whole lot of uh, It was important to me, and I was I was I was I was wrong to yell about it. <laughs> so it wasn't like the hundred Elvis impersonators jumping out of planes with us and ten. Well, sort of like that, but <laughs> but, but deeper. Any more questions? Yeah, I think there's one over here. You uh, when you mentioned black, uh, you talked about migration policies in Australia. Are you talking about Aboriginals? Are you talking about? No, I'm talking about I'm talking about the I'm talking about. The Aboriginal people. Australia, Australia had this uh, was you know, plainly named white Australia policy, which uh, was in effect really, really I think, and, and, until the, the Whitlam government came 
came to power in, in the 70s. Um, and a policy supported on the left and the right by you know, trade unions, you know, afraid, afraid of you know, competitive people in the labour market and so on and so on. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a shameful part you know, of our history. But certainly Australia, that's Australia, if, you, if you know Australia today and the Australian cities, they're, you know, they're modern, you know, multicultural cities. They're not, they bear very little resemblance to that Australia that I, that I grew up with. You mentioned, uh, like, uh, Robert mentioned you've written a lot about Australia after you left there. Mm. And I thought a lot of, like, you know, the books in that cover, you know, you would always write about Russia, you know, after you left there. And also, connecting it with, you mentioned sort of a supernatural, supernatural, uh, you know, like, uh, presence in Australia. Do you think that sort of heightened in, in your absence from the country? Like, because Australia mm. does, you know, um, well, the thing about, about well, I, I, to me, it doesn't seem any more supernatural than any other place. I guess um, being away from the country. I mean, I think when I came here for a long time, people would say, "Well, when are you going to write about New, write a New York book?" and uh, I, and I got to a stage where I really thought I had to do it, almost. It even though it was just a sort of a test of skill or, or, or goodwill or something. <laughs> and, um, and I did indeed begin. And, uh, and I abandoned that book to write this one with huge relief. Uh, and, and there's no doubt that I, I learnt at that time that uh, you know, the depth and breadth of stuff I can bring to this is... is so much in excess of what I could bring to a book about New York that I'm going to forget about New York for now. Um, the whole supernatural thing, well, I don't know. I mean, Australia doesn't... I'm not really totally engaged in that sort of notion about Australia, but, but, but in this particular book, uh, I, certainly, I certainly was interested in the culture of, you know, of, the culture of people who... who come to Australia and how they saw the world and what stories they had and how they thought about things. And because those things are stories and stories which I can build stories out of and on top of, then that's attractive to me and just the things of making this invented world. That yeah. I, well. I don't really mean that going from that kind of just that sort of... Yeah. I think it's looks like Bloodlines. Song, 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 song. Yeah, well, I, 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 I once got sort of burnt by being involved in a movie that had a little bit of a woo-woo feeling about it. About it. So I'm pr- probably a bad person to talk to about this. <laughs> the, um, it's struck me as an interesting paradox in a way that you talked about the sort of thinness of Australian culture mm. and that that permits you to make a contribution that mm. can actually be quite sort of strong mm. uh, and maybe strategic in, in other ways. But at the same time, you chose this field, which one would think is kind of the thickest part of that thin culture. You talk about 
you know, friends all being surprised that he chose this tale that everyone thought they knew and that other artists obviously sort of know and, you know, and, and a story which I guess at that moment was very important in a sort of attempt to create national identity mm. uh, rather than to deny that mm. you know, as many mm. earlier mm. generation had. So it just struck me as an interesting kind of Paradox. Yeah, except that what we think is thick is, turns out to be really thin. <laughs> and and uh, I think it's not unlike us to have been hesitant to, ima- to really imagine the emotional life of these characters. And, and Sidney Nolan's paintings, which are truly extraordinary and certainly you know, made me think about writing this book again, are not in any way concerned about it. You know, they're, they're, they're concerned with a, you know, an icon literally and, and uh, so it's yeah, the, the paintings represent uh, Kelly with this sort of stylized uh, bucket head to you know this big black square head it's very surreal and uh, so, it's not, so and you can often see the landscape through it uh, so it isn't really his, his, his project isn't really at all to do with character or isn't at all all the emotional it's, they are not devoid of emotion but uh, not the emotional life of the character in that way. So, and I think it rather suited us that we had the, that we would have this sort of uh, armoured male figure <laughs> uh, uh, and that we didn't really want to think about much about what was inside the armour. I think that feels sort of like us in a way. So, anyway, I, I think yeah, it, it, it's meant to be thick. I mean, it should be a thick bit of the culture, but that didn't seem to me when I got into it. You just heard Peter Carey being interviewed by Robert Polito, part of the Bomb Live writer series that took place at the New School in New York City in the winter of 2001. For streaming video, web-exclusive interviews, and more, check out bombsite.com.